Well, good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, and I want to welcome you all to our December Conservative Women's Network. Special thank you to our co-hosts, Bridget Wagner, the Heritage Foundation, our partner in these luncheons for many years. And I want to thank each of you for joining us today and welcome you to our special December edition of the Conservative Women's Network. <laughs> We usually feature the top women leaders in America, but each December it's our tradition, Tom, to invite a special gentleman speaker to address our group. And this year we're so pleased to have Judicial Watch President Tom Finton with us. He's been the president of that group since 1998, and he's helped turn Judicial Watch into America's largest and most effective government watchdog organization. He's testified before Congress and is an internationally recognized expert on government corruption, election integrity, immigration enforcement, and open government. Under his leadership, Judicial Watch was named one of Washington's top 10 most effective government watchdog organizations by The Hill newspaper. Tom is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Clean House, Exposing Our Government's Secrets and Lies, which he'll be discussing today as well as the Corruption Chronicles, and he's also the executive producer of the documentary movie, District of Corruption. In 2015, the American Conservative Union awarded him with the Defender of the Constitution Award during the annual Conservative Political Action Conference. Tom got his BA from George Washington University and resides in the Washington, D.C. area with his family, his wife, and three daughters. He's truly blessed. And Tom, you got Hillary. Good for you. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Tom Fitton. Any questions here? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Bridget Wagner, for hosting uh, Judicial Watch and me at uh, this wonderful uh, event. We appreciate the opportunity to get the word out about, obviously, the book Clean House, but what's in it and Judicial Watch's mission which is as important as ever and shows that one independent group uh, can change history. Judicial Watch was founded in 1994 during the Clinton administration. And you can imagine we had a lot to do back then with impeachment and uh, the corruption endemic during that administration. And we're a 501c3, we're a charity, we're an educational foundation, and we're dedicated to exposing and uncovering government corruption. So now you know why uh, we were kept busy during the Clinton, uh, the Clinton years. And we saw a terrible corruption in the Oval Office, the selling of high office for personal gain and political gain uh, by President Clinton. We saw uh, the misuse of FBI files, the misuse of the, FBI, uh, uh, the misuse of the IRS, and uh, the hiring of private investigators by the President and his wife to investigate witnesses against them, the women who were calling and blowing the whistle on Mrs. Clinton's uh, activities and Bill Clinton's activities. Uh, real scandal in the Oval Office. And Mrs. Clinton herself, I often joked when the FBI was uh, investigating her earlier and the Justice Department supposedly was investigating her as well, uh, I would joke if, they're, if prosecutors are preparing a an indictment of Hillary Clinton, it wouldn't be the first time, because in the late 90s, uh, Mrs. Clinton uh, was almost indicted for her lies and obstruction on the Whitewater real estate matter. 
And the only reason she wasn't indicted, uh, and we have the records that we've recently uncovered showing this, was because prosecutors didn't think they could get her convicted by a jury. Uh, that because she was a public figure, the standards of proof would be higher, the burden of proof would be higher, and however lawless that was for a jury to take that position, that was the reality they were facing, so the best they thought, thought they'd be able to get was a hung jury. So they decided not to prosecute her. They didn't prosecute her because she was innocent, and she didn't think, they didn't prosecute her because they didn't think they had the facts and evidence. They thought that because of the politics, and jury nullification, essentially, they wouldn't be able to make the case. So that was what we had when Mrs. Clinton came into the Obama administration. And Judicial Watch warned President Obama, the Clinton scandals would now be your scandals. In fact, President Obama won, and based in part on the theory that we didn't want to have those arguments again from the 90s, which was a, his way of saying, lock her up. And sure enough, he did beat Mrs. Clinton based on the anti-corruption argument he was making. Yet he hired her into the State Department. And almost immediately, we now know, thanks to Judicial Watch's, uh, and this is what Judicial Watch does to take a step back, we use a law known as the Freedom of Information Act that typically have been used by the left to um, really just go after the national security establishment. Uh, they didn't like the idea that the FBI and the CIA were doing things against communism and domestic enemies of, uh, uh, and domestic allies of the communists here in the United States. So they used the FOIA to focus on the CIA and the FBI and expose what, uh, uh, you know, supposed CIA abuses and things like that. And Judicial Watch was the first group on the right to use the Freedom of Information Act on behalf of our values, uh, expressing skepticism in government, expressing skepticism that what the government was up to wasn't really about the public good, but to help private parties. And uh, oftentimes that there was scandal and corruption behind most government programs. And so uh, with the Freedom of Information Act, we used it against the Clinton administration. We used it against the Bush administration. In fact, we sued the Bush administration twice as much as we sued the Clinton administration under the Freedom of Information Act. In fact, we took George Bush's administration all the way up to the Supreme Court on transparency issues. But the issues we had seen under Clinton and Bush all metastasized under President Obama. So we had a president, again, who ran on a commitment to transparency, again, an anti-corruption uh, uh, platform in part. And uh, he became about, uh, as, uh, he, he, he was to transparency, think of a, some ter terrible metaphor, as to Vladimir Putin was to something else. Just a terrible, terrible secretive administration, completely lawless. Typically, the Freedom Information Act, you file a request, say, give us all the documents about Benghazi. Then you typically have 20 days, the agencies do, to respond. Maybe 60 days if they give themselves some extra time. Oftentimes, Judicial Watch just has to sue just to get an answer. So it isn't like we go in and sue on day 21. We sue after usually months and months of infighting, with the uh, months and months of back, uh, of back and forth with the agency just to get him to get us an answer. Are you going to give us the documents or not? If so, when? We don't want to have to sue every time we ask a question, but that's what we often had to do. And with the Obama administration, the government was doing so much more. You had the government increased by what? By, we'll have to get the heritage budget maintenance to tell us the details, by, by about a third plus 
So $4 trillion in government spending, more or less. Congress is completely out to lunch on oversight. The media doesn't really care what big government's up to. They care if big government isn't spending enough money, uh, but they don't really care about investigating the corruption the way a conservative skeptic would. So you have the lack of oversight, the government doing more than ever, and so Judicial Watch stepped up to the plate. And we used this law to investigate the Obama administration in a way never done before by a private entity in terms of providing oversight that we typically rely on our government to provide. We filed over 3,000 Freedom of Information Act requests with the Obama administration. And no, we didn't sue them 3,000 times, but we did sue them about 300 times. We sued them on Benghazi. We sued them on the IRS. We sued them on Solyndra. We sued them on Fast and Furious. We sued them on Obamacare. And obviously, we sued them about 20 times on the Clinton emails. Now, we didn't know what we were going to find. We didn't know about the Clinton emails. We noticed back in 2014 when we were pursuing litigation about Benghazi. You may recall we had uncovered this document that showed the White House was involved in the big lies on Benghazi. The White House was blaming the intelligence community about the lie on Benghazi, that a video was behind it as opposed to al-Qaeda. Interesting how the White House points to the intelligence community on these politically controversial uh, allegations it makes, isn't it? But we did notice, uh, and as a result of that find, uh, Speaker Boehner was outraged because he was looking for these documents through his various committees. Five or six congressional committees couldn't find it, but Judicial Watch did through our one lawsuit. And he created a select committee on Benghazi. But we noticed in all of our Benghazi investigations and lawsuits that we weren't seeing any Clinton emails. Now, of course, I thought, well, maybe Mrs. Clinton didn't use emails. She was first. She never. She didn't have a real job for a long time. She was first lady. She was a senator. She ran for the presidency, uh, and then she's Secretary of State. You know, maybe the email revolution had passed her by. Well, little did I know. But just because we didn't find the emails, I didn't just presume because we didn't use them, we just, you know, we had a guess, but we had to verify. So we asked more specifically for her emails. And we got more of the same back in terms of documents we had already gotten. And one of our lawyers, Ramona Kotka, who is uh, one of our staff attorneys handling the Benghazi litigation, asked the attorneys at the end of 2014, we, we've got these documents already. Where are you looking? They said, okay, we'll get back to you on that. And in December 2014, they said, well, you know what? Um, looks like there's other documents we need to look at. And then in February 2015, they told the court, we gave Judicial Watch everything other than these other documents we, need, we still need to look at. And three, four weeks later, it appears in the New York Times that Mrs. Clinton had all these emails. And then subsequently we learned about the server. So I have no doubt our Freedom of Information Act litigation forced their hand. It was either come out through Judicial Watch or come out through a more friendly party or vehicle they saw probably as such as the New York Times, getting the story out in a way uh, to kind of take the wind out of the, uh, the explosive disclosure potentially through litigation. We had seen that previously with the IRS. They didn't want to tell anyone about Lois Lerner's deleted emails, but they had our litigation and they couldn't avoid it. And they were doing unusual things in our litigation to avoid the disclosure directly 
until they slid the uh, disclosure about Lois Lerner's deleted emails that were actually weren't deleted uh, to Congress in a 17-page letter. It's our litigation that was forcing these agencies to own up to this massive violation of law. So as a result of the Clinton email fines, we were outraged because we had been defrauded, because we had shut down cases based on the promises Mrs. Clinton had made or the State Department had made that they did an adequate search. How can you do an adequate search if you're not searching for through Mrs. Clinton's emails? What an outrage. The courts were defrauded. We had two cases reopened. And we'd shut them down. You know, our cases end usually when the government gives us everything they're going to give us, and sometimes they withhold stuff and we can't get it. We just end it because we got what we thought we could get. We had no reason to think they didn't search everywhere they should have. So they lied to us and caused us to shut down cases that were then reopened. It's never happened before. And one of those cases was before, was before Judge Sullivan, an appointee of Bill Clinton. And Judge Sullivan authorized and told the State Department, make sure you get the documents. Ask, uh, ask these other Mrs. Clinton and her top aides to make sure they turn over government documents back to the government. And they did. And Mrs. Clinton submitted a declaration under penalty of perjury. She said, as far as I know, everything's been turned over. We now know that wasn't the case, and she knew that wasn't the case, or should have known it wasn't the case. And Judge Sullivan also authorized discovery. Now, as a non-lawyer, I can tell you discovery is generally pretty rare in Freedom Information Act litigation, usually just fighting about documents. But the discovery meant that we had witnesses to depose and bring in and question under oath. Cheryl Mills, Yuma Abedin, and top officials at the State Department who were complicit and aided and embedded Mrs. Clinton's mishandling of federal infor government information, classified information, her taking a government document she didn't have any government, any business doing, and her failure to abide by the Federal Records Act and the Freedom of Information Act. Congress didn't take that, those, that discovery. Obviously, the media didn't. It was Judicial Watch. And then in August of this year, we started getting documents from Yuma Abedin's emails. Now, Hillary Clinton had her email server, recall, and she had an account. Now, supposedly, the only other two people who had accounts on that email system were Yuma Abedin and Chelsea Clinton. I'm wondering if we asked for Chelsea's emails. She wasn't a government official, so I don't know if we can get them. But Yuma Abedin's, she was conducting government business on that system. So we were getting her emails, and we sued for all of them. Now, the government had gotten them a year previously from Huma Abedin, but it took them a year to turn them over to us. So that ended up being turned over to us in the middle of the presidential campaign, even though they had gotten them the year before. Whose fault is that? And the emails showed that Huma Abedin, who you may recall was the Clinton's foundation connection, she said in her deposition that she needed this email account to do the Clinton family business, which meant handling the foundation. So she was in communications, and it, later in her term as uh, working for Mrs. Clinton, she was working at the State Department, Teneo, a Clinton entity, and the Clinton Foundation, another Clinton entity, all at the same time. Remember, th remember that when you think and hear about President Trump's conflicts of interest. 
So we were getting emails from Clinton Foundation executives, Doug Bant, Yuma Abedin, showing that foundation donors were getting special and favored treatment at the State Department, despite Mrs. Clinton's explicit promises to keep the Clinton Foundation business out of the State Department, and that she would not participate in it, and there'd be, no day, there'd be a lot of daylight between the two entities. When, in fact, we had a corrupt Nigerian billionaire trying to get a meeting with the State Department official through the Clinton Foundation. Is there anything other than a, you know, is a corrupt Nigerian billionaire a redundancy? I think so. But a major donor to the Clinton Foundation. The, Prince of Bra the Crown Prince of Bahrain. Couldn't get this Bahrain, by the way, I think our sixth fleet is, is posted at Bahrain. So not an insignificant nation. But he couldn't get a meeting through diplomatic channels, so he went through the Clinton Foundation to get a meeting with the Secretary of State. If that's not pay for play, I don't know what is. So as a result of fines like that, you get front page stories, you know, fake news in the New York Times, I guess, and fake news in the Washington Post and all over the media. And obviously that had an impact. You know, Judicial Watch, we weren't pursuing this litigation because of uh, political issues. We weren't just pursuing the litigation because we had a right to get the documents under law. And the consequences of the stonewalling with the State Department and Hillary Clinton's misconduct became quite evident on Election Day. It doesn't mean that we were involved in that outcome and wanted a specific outcome, but the American people made a judgment on Election Day. The FBI didn't want to do anything with it. The Justice Department didn't want to do anything with it. Congress, I think, had one set of hearings about Hillary Clinton's emails. It was in the September or October before election before election, and then they went home for two months. That shows you how diligent Congress is. But the American people made a decision on Election Day based in part on the materials and the corruption they saw with Mrs. Clinton. <clears throat> and I dare say based in part on the promises that Mr. Trump made about accountability for Mrs. Clinton. And I think that's what he needs to do is keep those promises. You know, the left would have you believe that Election Day is some sort of event horizon past which nothing should escape, especially if it protects Democrats and liberals. So the corruption of Hillary Clinton, the pay-for-play, the illegal taking of documents, the violations of national security, none of that should matter. We're talking about the Russians today, which I think is appropriate, but we're only getting half the story about the Russians. I mean, sure they wanted to impact the election. Sure they wanted to disrupt our public policy process. Sure they greatly enjoyed it. But they used a variety of techniques to do that, including funneling money to Hillary Clinton's foundation to ensure potentially a decision by Hillary Clinton to allow Russian interests to gain significant controlling interests in uranium production and mining here in the United States. And even if... They didn't get the benefit of the bargain. They certainly tried to bribe her. And of course, Judicial Watch found in its own independent investigation that the Clintons were getting money directly from foreign governments through Bill Clinton's speaking fees while she was Secretary of State. This isn't money that was going to the foundation. This is money that was going to their personal coffers. Now, Bill and Hillary, you know, are married. So money to Bill goes to Hillary. 
So when she's making $48 million through her husband from foreign, pretty much anyone who would give them the money, through exorbitant speaking fees, speaking fees which were out of the ordinary, you have to wonder. And no wonder the FBI wanted to investigate it. And why wouldn't the Russians try to take advantage of that? And if we're going to investigate Russian interference in our political process, we should look at the big picture. Were they trying to influence us through the Clinton Foundation and the State Department, through DNC hacks? And, and if they were, why did the administration look the other way? To protect Hillary Clinton? I think the answer is yes to, to looking the other, you know, they wanted to protect her until after the election. Because to talk about Russian influence in American public policy and political circles, you didn't want to have that issue raised before the election. Certainly Donald Trump was susceptible to criticism on that. But Mrs. Clinton was equally susceptible. And that's the problem about corruption in Washington, D.C., is that both sides see a potential downside in raising questions about the ethics of the other. And so as a result, nothing really gets done. And that's why it's important to have a group like Judicial Watch be an independent watchdog and do the work on behalf of the American people to expose government corruption from uh, no matter who is running government. Now, we're going to have a lot of work to do during a Trump administration because Congress isn't going to do the work because they don't do the work anyway. And they're even less likely to do the work because it's controlled by a friendly party, obviously the same party as uh, Mr. Trump. So the oversight's going to be lacking. Now, I don't know if Mr. Trump is going to provide uh, where he's going to be on these transparency issues. I mean, he says he's for transparency. I hope that he brings a transparency revolution to the government because right now we're in a crisis. Congress writes checks with its eyes closed. The agencies don't want you to know what they're up to. And the president, obviously, President Obama, thinks the Constitution doesn't apply to him. So at this point, I forget about elections being rigged. Elections don't mean anything when you have a government that acts like that. They're happy to let us have elections if afterwards self-government isn't really there for us. Sending Congress to town to do nothing but just spend money with its eyes closed and the agencies don't think they're accountable, that isn't self-government. So elections are only half the battle. So Mr. Trump has some decisions to make in terms of empowering his appointees to be transparent as opposed to violating the rule of law on secrecy. And he can do a lot to bring sunshine into the government through a commitment to transparency. In my view, we're going to get Obamacare repealed. We're probably going to get tax cuts. We're probably get some good regulatory reform and less regulation in a way that conservatives like. To me, that doesn't require a lot of political capital on the part of, well, unless they're, if you're competent, it doesn't require a lot of political capital on the part of the politicians coming into power, Mr. Trump and the new Republican Congress. The political juice needs to be brought to bear on the corruption issue that I think Mr. Trump really won on. If he really wants to cause trouble, if he wants to reform the system, he needs to focus his political capital on reform and corrupt, on, on, on government reform and battling corruption. That includes transparency, 
the idea of term limits sounds like a good idea. Balanced budgets sound like a good idea. A reform program that's significant, and it means enforcing the rule of law. He needs to think of his appointees as sheriffs. Going in there, not to necessarily affect policy, obviously that's going to be important, but to find out what the heck the bureaucracies have been up to for the last eight years, find out who's responsible for the misconduct, make sure they're not in a position to make decisions in the future, and make sure there's accountability for the poor decisions that were made that resulted in agency actions that were in violation of the Constitution, the rule of law, or resulted in abuses of power. That, to me, was to be the job one. For instance, we're talking about the Secretary of State position, the head of ExxonMobil. You know, I, the foreign policy issue is almost irrelevant compared to the corruption endemic at the State Department that allowed the head of the agency to upend a transparency law, uh, potentially place our national security at risk, lie about Benghazi, place those men and women at risk, destroy government records, and then once they're caught, continue to try to cover it up. Boy, that's, a one, that's one big job for the Secretary of State to figure out what went on and who should be held account. Because of a lot of the people who helped Mrs. Clinton do that weren't political appointees, but they were supposedly nonpartisan civil servants. So this is a major issue, in my view, for the Trump administration. And before I close and open up to questions, I had an op-ed this week about Mr. Trump's supposed conflicts of interest. Now, we're hearing a lot from the left, and admittedly some on the right, that Mr. Trump, in order to avoid conflicts of interest and the appearance of conflict of interest, should just destroy his company. And I don't, I'm not exaggerating. He should sell his stake in it. Arguably, there shouldn't even be a Trump organization to distract from the big government enterprise he's expected to undertake. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound to me very conservative. The ethics laws in Washington, D.C. are designed to help or not encumber politicians moving in and out of government or making lateral moves in government or getting new jobs or promotions in government. If you're a lobbyist, it's really easy to divest yourself of your share in the lobbying firm or your share in the legal firm. But if you're someone like Mr. Trump, can you really fairly ask him to, quote, divest himself from a billion-dollar business that has probably thousands of real estate holdings and sub-companies and such? Obviously not. And if we were to ask him to do that, uh, to me that is just unfair. Destroy your legacy to, in order to appease some who will never be appeased on this issue. Now, we're an ethics watchdog group. We recognize there will be conflicts of interest that will burden Mr. Trump as a result of his business relationships throughout his presidency. Now, there's a difference between burdening him and raising questions now and again about what his agencies or government and policies, um, how they might impact his personal financial fortune that presumably will be managed by his family. It doesn't mean that he's Hillary Clinton. It doesn't mean that he's Richard Nixon. It just means he's got an ethical issue that he needs to manage and be sensitive about. And it may mean divesting some of his resources or some of his investments 
if he has more specific investments tied to foreign governments or foreign controlled entities, he should think about getting out of those specifically. He should think about making all of it, well, the law requires this, but he should make it a point specifically to uh, uh, power his agencies to disclose everything related to government business with his companies. And his companies, you know, we can't require this, it would probably be a good idea to not engage in any more foreign deals. To the, to the extent possible, Mr. Trump should disentangle himself from any foreign entanglements and presumably his family should proceed uh, in a way that avoids any further foreign entanglements. And that's a far cry from destroying his business. Now, the issue about his tax returns. Again, the left doesn't, by the way, these ethics conflicts of interest rules, they don't apply to the president. So the left goes crazy about that because Trump is right. He says, well, they don't apply to me. I can do what I want. <laughs> and frankly, the only check on him is impeachment. Now, we're only allowed to impeach Republicans in Washington. We're not allowed to impeach <laughs> Democratic office holders. I find that to be interesting. But uh, there's no law requiring the release of any politician's tax returns. Did you know that? It's your private information. Now, presidents traditionally have released their tax returns. Now, Mr. Trump's tax returns are about this high. And obviously, they reflect on his corporate interests in a way that would maybe upend them if they were publicly released. And he also says he's, uh, he can't release them because his lawyers advised him, and I believe this to be the case, and it's probably good advice, that if you're under audit, don't release your tax returns. So my conclusion is it would probably be good transparency to release your tax returns. It would probably be good politics. Probably shore up his support on the right more so than the left because the left doesn't really care about this. This is all just a tool to get Trump. But we should recognize releasing his tax returns isn't just about being transparency. It's about basically, uh, it could be about also placing his companies at risk and his family's personal livelihoods at risk. So let's not just pretend it's like, again, someone whose only job is a lobbying partner or the head running a baseball running a baseball team in the case of a former president. It's much more complicated. So Mr. Trump needs to be aware of these conflicts of interest, and just because his enemies are going to be criticizing for it, criticizing him for them, doesn't mean they're not of concern to many honest Americans. Now, Judicial Watch is going to continue our transparency work. All the lawsuits against Bill Clinton, excuse me, against the State Department. All those hundreds of lawsuits I talked about, to the degree they're still going on, they're all going to be against the Trump administration. So we're going to have dozens of lawsuits pending against the Trump administration on January 20th at 1201, whenever, whenever he becomes president. So all these Obama lawsuits will be Trump lawsuits. So he has a choice to make as to whether he's going to be, uh, take a different approach. We had the State Department in court just a few weeks ago tell a federal court judge when, when the FBI, thanks to Judicial Watch, turned over, is turning over 31,000 more pages of records that we didn't know about. 
from the Clinton email scandal. This is the material they found in Yuma Abedin's system, I think. And they said, well, we want to look at these and probably go through them about 500 pages a month. So let's do the math. What's 500 pages a month into 31,000? Is that 62 months? 62 months is what, five years? As I used to joke, and maybe it's still a good joke, you know, we won't get them to the Chelsea Clinton administration. <laughs> now, is the Trump administration going to take a different approach? I was talking to someone about this ridiculous time frame, and uh, the person said, well, you know, you can review documents as quickly as you can shred them. <laughs> so there's no reason we don't get these documents more timely. So Trump has an opportunity for accountability, an easy out or an easy opportunity, just by making these documents available in a more timely way. And I can tell you, if the Trump administration comes in and says, you know, we're not the Obama administration, you can't question us because we're better than Trump, than Obama. Well, that's not appropriate. I mean, that was the Bush approach. There has to be a real commitment to transparency. Otherwise, we're going to see them in court. We're going to be asking questions about their policies, about what they're up to. I mean, do you think corruption is going to disappear from Washington, D.C. just because there's a new president in town? Look at these bureaucracies. I was just thinking the other day. Now I'm going to really finish it up, Michelle. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, wash, the, um, the media got all, all upset because the Trump transition team was asking the Energy Department about specific, what specific people were working on climate change. And the Energy Department said, we're not going to tell you that. Who is running our government <laughs> that our bureaucracies think they can tell an incoming president and, frankly, the American people to go jump in a lake when we ask who exactly is doing the work that we pay for? And those are the bureaucracies that Mr. Trump is going to have to contend with in his appointees. The bureaucracies will go to war against Mr. Trump and his policies. If, there's, if, they're comp if the policies are good, they're going to go to war against them. My guess, you know, one good rule of thumb is if there's a Trump appointee not causing any uh, public controversy, then he's probably or she isn't doing a good job. Because the bureaucracies, if they bring them in and they suck them in, you'll never hear from the appointees again. But if they don't, you'll hear plenty about the appointees from the bureaucracies complaining about their, oh, you know, so-and-so at the energy department, you know, started questioning whether or not, you know, all these energy regulations contribute to any sensible, um, provide any sensible benefit in terms of climate change. And that will be a major controversy. We want to see stories like that. And Judicial Watch are going to investigate those bureaucracies and police those bureaucracies. Because I have a feeling the administration is going to be running into a buzzsaw. And the typical response is to stand down when facing a buzzsaw. Who wants to put their face into a buzzsaw? Well, Judicial Watch will do the work of oversight of the government if the Trump administration appointees refuse to. And certainly Congress um, is, you know, friendly to the agencies more so than you think. So there's a lot of work to be done. And, um, you know, we lay this, now talking about the book, we lay this all out in clean house. We have copies outside available to you afterwards. 
But you need to educate yourself about what your government's up to, because I can tell you this is a precious right we have. Without, um, this is a, you know, uh, my view is that uh, our work wouldn't be possible in any other country in the world. No other country has the kind of set of laws we have as it relates to government uh, transparency. We can go into court and take on and win the IRS, the Obama uh, uh, Treasury Department, the Obama State Department, Justice Department, you name it. Isn't that remarkable? Do you think they allow that in France or even in Canada? Now, we don't win all the time. I mean, judges work for the government, too, and they tend to be deferential sometimes to the government in fights with judicial watch. But I take this process and the rule of law that we are able to benefit from over any other country's process and rule of law any day of the week. And so we have this precious, precious right to provide, we have this precious, precious right available to us to, prov uh, to give us oversight over what our government's up to. And if we believe in self-government, uh, then that's something we need to do. And uh, if there's one thing that we prove, and one of the first things you see, and Bernadette, you've been in our office, uh, when you come into our office, we have these quotes from the Founding Fathers that reflect on our mission. And we have the Declaration of Independence, obviously, and, but there's one quote from George Washington. The truth will prevail where there is great pains taken to bring it to light. And Judicial Watch proves that point. And it proves that, uh, and it shows that there's an opportunity, and our success there shows that there is an opportunity to bring this government back to heel. And we hope we have an ally in the new administration and Congress. Uh, but I tell you, if they don't do the work, we will. And if they get in our way uh, and they oppose us and become part of the problem, uh, you can bet we'll be there, we'll be as critical of them as we've been of previous administrations. So with that being said, I open it up to questions, assuming we have any time for some. Thank you for your time. We do. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Your work really has changed the course of history for our country, and we're all very grateful to you for Thank that. You, um, we have a microphone here. Uh, oh, Alyssa, why don't you come over here? This, uh, this one, lady first. Alyssa is our intern from Gettysburg College. For this semester, today's her last day. She's heading back. So you told me to go 20 minutes, so I went 40. Excuse me. <laughs> it was good. It was good. Oh, not a lawyer. It's, uh, so I have no excuse. Give your name and your affiliation. Uh, my name is Lenore Ostrovsky. I'm with the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. What? I'm a civil service person. What is there any liability on the part of civil service, uh, civil servants, for refusing to comply with the legal request? Um, under the FOIA laws? Uh, not really. I mean, there might be, you know, I, you might have a check uh, mark put against you and you're, uh, when it comes time for uh, raises or um, evaluations at the end of the year, uh, but you probably have more experience in that than I do. Has FOIA ever been raised with you as a practical matter in terms of uh, your work as a civil servant? And your responses to FOIA? Is our, of course, our responses. Um, our response is to provide everything conceivable, and the unfortunate general counsel person has to actually go through and, and read them. But right. My point, I think, of the point of the question is that you won't get transparency unless there is a consequence um, on the part of 
the um, people who, who produce the documents, not just the political appointees, but also the civil servants. Right now, there's, um, there's a, virtually, a virtual blanket exemption, and that will not change. And if you couple that with the fact that you cannot, basically, it's very difficult to fire civil servants for anything, um, this is not a situation that's going to, in my view, resolve itself anytime soon. Right, and I think there needs to be more emphasis. You know, obviously, there are different, there are different, there are different issues that st that agencies focus on in terms of uh, promoting and uh, giving attaboys to uh, civil servants. You know, my perception is transparency isn't high in the priority list. Because oh, I'm you know the most uh, transparent uh, agency and the great work on FOIA. That typically is not terribly a, a that's not a serious focus on the part of many agencies. In my experience, most civil servants do try to turn over the material. And it usually gets gummed up at the at the senior level, and the, the usually the problems are agency officials, political appointees, or the senior uh, civil servants, purposely uh, withholding documents or slowing the release of documents down, or otherwise messing with the process. Uh, because generally speaking, the civil servants know how to do it with FOIA, and um, and and when there's something that's withheld improperly or we don't get a response, it's usually because someone has something to hide. And civil servants aren't usually in a position to make that decision because, uh, you know, these days your emails at the agencies typically can be searched uh, from a central location that the individuals don't need to search their own documents, although that's often the case. Uh, so it's usually the political appointees. It's the leadership. And we need a leadership that's focused on transparency, and it's transparency specifically when it's inconvenient. It's that type of transparency. It's that type of a tough transparency they really need to focus on. They're always happy to give you reams of data that no one really cares about. I'm sure there is always someone who cares about it, but the public isn't interested in it. But, you know, what was Hillary Clinton saying about the foundation on this month and that week or whatever? They know that's of interest to people, and they don't want that to come out. And that's where the fights come, the politically sensitive topics. And the transparency, uh, you've got to really be, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are you going to be transparent on matters that are embarrassing to the agency or to your political, or your political bosses in the White House? And um, time and time again, our, political, uh, our, our politicians and bureaucrats fail. And that's universal across the board. Clinton, they failed. Bush, they failed. Obama, they failed. Will Trump break the mold? We'll see. So that was a long answer to that question. So Can I just me. ask a quick follow-up? I mean, to, to go to the, the question of consequences, um, I mean, that's you're, you're taking them to court, then, is the consequence. And the judge can take a more serious action. Um, and then that compels the release. Isn't that? Right. Well, I mean, the, the consequence, but the consequence to individual bureaucrats is often... Um, there's almost none to, to the oversight. I mean, we had an OIG report where they said many FOIA requests as a result of the Clinton email scandal were inaccurate and incomplete. Now, I'm not aware of any State Department official who was punished as a result of that. Hillary Clinton wasn't even investigated for her violations of FOIA but for by Judicial Watch. The FBI didn't bother looking into it. 
I mean, so the law is available if it wants to be used, but typically when we sue under the, you know, if the agencies violate the law, typically the worst that will happen is they may have to pay Judicial Watch's modest legal fees, which are usually, you know, you know between ten and $30,000, if that. That's the, bad, that's the worst that will happen. And usually they'll spend $60,000 fighting the fine for $30,000. So it's, uh, it, there's really no material consequence to the agencies, the bureaucracies, or to the individuals involved in the cover-ups. Any other questions? Oh, John, and, and then up here. I have, I have one, too. <laughs> I was thinking about challenging your math, but then it challenged mine. <laughs> I would like to get a feel, though. We use the term 30,000, 36,000. As if these are each one a war and peace novel in length, can you give us a better feel for what we mean by the bulk of 33,000? Aren't some of those less than half of a page, whereas these trails do not go on forever in every one of them? <laughs> right. So if you had 33,000, you could read 100 a day, and in a year they would have them all read, but you can read certainly many more. Well, you expose your question, uh, the gravamen of your question exposes the fraud when they complain about these numbers. So imagine my sending an email, hey, John, you want to get together for lunch? Exactly. Document one. Mm -hmm. no. Yes. <laughs> Document two. Okay, what time? Document three. And you could have five emails setting up an email, a meeting. I mean, does that take a lot of time to review? I mean, most of the documents are email chains, right. almost all of which are repeated in the document with one additional line or two. So it is an absolute fraud and an abuse of taxpayer resources. When you ask the state, I, mean, I recall seeing a State Department, because sometimes the judges get frustrated too. I remember there was an Obama appointee who said, I can go through 500 pages in an afternoon. What's going on here? And so sometimes the agencies will give you an affidavit or a declaration describing their search process and never give a bureaucrat a chance to describe what they do because they love doing that. Well, I had to print out the email and wait for it to come on the printer. And I had to place it in front of my desk and then look at it and then type in the data onto my computer, wait for it to load, put it in the folder, and I had to get up from my desk and bring the document down to my colleague, who then re-reviewed it. And it, it, you, you couldn't make it up in terms of the absurdity of the process they create in order to justify the unlawful amount of time they take to keep information that you have a right to under the law. You know, all we can do is, you know, we do investigative reporting, and I know Heritage does some of that now as well for the Daily Signal. 
but the Freedom of Information Act only applies to government agencies. So if a government agency was looking into those issues, we, for instance, could ask for the police report on the death of that poor man who was killed. Um, you know, I don't know if there's any there or there, but, you know, half the time, uh, I, there are many times where there would be so-called conspiracies out there, conspiracy theories, and I'm skeptical of them. But one way to allay people's concerns is to get the information out there so they can see this is this has been an appropriate investigation. There's it didn't happen the way you think it happened, or maybe there's something there. I remember during the uh, well, you, you, there's an element that was always thought uh, largely on the left that 9/11 uh, was an insider job, right? And there was a someone who was you know I good conservative guy who was trying to convince me of this. And I said blah blah, you know I've. My job at Judicial Watch is to kind of look at all of everything, you know, and see what's up and what's down. And I've looked at that, and it was obviously that it was not correct to me. And he said, but Tom, they haven't released the videotape of the attack on the Pentagon. I'm like, what? There's a videotape of the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon that hasn't been released? And, of course, the conspiracy theorists were like, doesn't that show you that there's something to hide? Well, maybe it does. Well, how is it we figure that out and allay those concerns? You get the videotape, and we asked for the videotape. And we sued for the videotape. And we did get the videotape of a parking lot video camera showing the American Airlines plane smashing into the Pentagon. An extraordinary, and, and you would have thought someone else would be interested in that tape, right? And it was Judicial Watch who got it. Now, it looked to me like a plane hit the Pentagon. It didn't really take the 9-11 truthers weren't convinced because they thought the tape was edited. So there's no convincing anybody, everybody. But my point being, we obtained that tape to kind of try to figure out if a conspiracy, to kind of allay the concerns of these conspiracy theorists. And, and it was a legitimate question why the tape wasn't released. So, you know, rather than just poo-pooing the questions, which is always easy to do, you should be prepared to investigate a little bit to figure out if there's anything legitimate behind the questions. Maybe I'll ask the last one and then we can... Oh, oh I'm sorry, here. go ahead. Sorry. Uh, just I had one final question on the accountability piece. If you're a new political appointee and you come into a place like state and you're able to identify all those folks that have stonewalled for so long, what can you actually do to create accountability? Reassign those folks? have a process that comes through the political team if, you're, if you really want to create a transparency? You know, I, I was, I, this is a half-joking answer. Uh, you, but uh, I, think of the, I, I think of the end of the movie, uh, The Untouchables. And the end of the movie, uh, uh, who was Sean the? Connery. Sean Connery was in it, and Kevin Costner, you may recall the movie, and uh, Robert De Niro played Al Capone. And Al Capone was about to go on trial. And uh, Kevin Costner figures out that the jury had been bought and paid for. And he knew uh, the judge was on the take. So he sent a note to the judge, and he said, I know you're on the take. I hope I'm not ruining the movie for anyone. <laughs> and I know you're on the take. Um, and, the one, and the judge said, you know, if you don't do something, and he said, if you don't do something about it, essentially, I'm going to call you out. And what the judge did was he said, I'll tell you what, I want you to release the jury here and bring in the jury from the other room and bring them in here. In many ways, that's the best solution. You just need to replace them. 
move them out of the positions of power they're in if you think they've done something wrong and you have credible evidence they have, you know, and there's rules you have to follow. You have to follow the rules and just bring in new leadership. Uh, you need just a wholesale replacement of uh, many of the top bureaucrats in the agencies that have allowed, that have abused the, uh, uh, they really just think they're uh, above the law. And there's going to be a process for doing that, and it's going to cause a lot of commotion. It may require changes in law to allow it to be done more easily. Uh, but these agencies have got to learn they work for us, and they're accountable to us. And if the president can't, if the president could do, uh, if there's a legacy he could have, it would be to reform the civil service to make it more accountable to the American people. You really answered what my question was going to be, which was about the IRS, especially Lois Lerner's division. She's sitting fat and happy with a big pension, but all those people who harass the conservatives are still there. And perhaps with Mr. Trump, it will happen because he's used to you're fired and you can't fire anybody. I was there for eight years at Reagan Bush. You cannot fire, short of committing homicide or molesting a child, you cannot fire a federal employee. Most of what they do is they give them a promotion, then they can't stay in that job with you. You know, they, they move past the limit. It's called. Anyway, that was my that was my question, but you've answered it. And maybe we have hope with a businessman that they will change some of those rules because there's many good people who work there. And some agencies are incorrigible. Yes. I mean, the IRS is a sort of Damocles hanging over the First Amendment, and it needs to be eliminated. There's no saving that IRS. How, you know, the, uh, Obama stole his election, uh, re-election, by using the IRS to suppress uh, his political opposition. How many times do we have to see the IRS abused before we take that, that gun out of the hand of the federal government toddler that's wielding it against us? Sorry. We've got to eliminate the IRS uh, because, uh, to me, uh, there's simply no jury uh, no clean hands that you could bring into an agency that's just sort of thoroughly corrupted and antagonistic to uh, the First Amendment rights of Americans. What an excellent presentation. Yeah. Will you sign your books out there for sure, people? Sure, I'm happy if, to uh, sign them. And yeah. he's giving the books. Uh, God bless you for that. No, you're welcome, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate and thank you for coming out, and thank you for everyone online uh, joining us. Yes, we have a, a thank you gift from the Heritage Foundation, if I can fish it out here. It's the uh, season of giving, and you may be getting a few of these uh, in under your Christmas tree, but it's a heritage necktie. Oh wow! Uh, to thank you for oh, joining us I haven't us seen this today. one yet. This is great. Yes, and like we have her. some gifts. This oh, is our Booth. limited edition coffee mug with her famous saying: "No good deed goes unpunished." There you go. <laughs> and the most we need bad deeds to go punished. <laughs> the most beautiful women in the conservative movement oh, are this twenty-seven is wonderful. great American conservative women, and they're all great leaders. Oh, this is and wonderful. You can give this to your. Blessed wife. I will. Thank we'll you very much, Michelle. Excellent. Appreciate it. Thank Merry you, Christmas Tom, to everybody. for joining Thank us you. today. Thank you. Um, and I think you're right. This really was a big part of this election. And so I think um, all of us will follow very closely what this administration, this next administration will be doing. And I hope uh, Judicial Watch is going to be giving them advice on how best to do that. So we invite you all to join us uh, in the lobby for signing of the books and uh, for some uh, lunch. And we can continue the conversation with Tom. So thanks again.